You're listening to Thaisi Women Diaspora, episode 13. For 30 years, Saki has worked to end domestic violence against South Asian women. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741 or visit them at sakhi.org. Welcome listeners to Desi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Mala Kumar. This episode is breaking from our usual format to focus on one of the most important South Asian women in the world, Kamala Harris. I've invited one of our former guests, Gayathri Sethi, to talk to me about the significance of Kamala Harris as the United States Democratic Vice Presidential nominee and what that means for both the South Asian and Black communities in the United States. Welcome back, I3, and thanks for coming to the show again. Uh, so last year, we had the chance to talk about your upbringing in Africa, the South Asian community in the States, and its relationship with the Black community, especially your experience assimilating uh, to the U.S. through the Black American community. So I'm really excited to speak to you today about a topic that I think transcends a lot of those topics, um, that being Kamala Harris, the Democratic Vice Presidential nominee, and what that means for South Asians in America and in the country more generally. So let me start off with something really simple. So how did you react to the news? How are your kids reacting, your husband? Tell me about that. Thank you for having me back. Um, it's an honor and delight um, to talk to you about this. Um, it's, uh, as you said before, a topic that's timely. And our family, you know, by virtue of us being a, a Black, Asian, Blindian family, um, we've had uh, some delightful conversation about this nomination and this news. Um, most of all, we are just uh, thrilled. We're thrilled that this is happening, that this is a reality, and that we're here to witness um, such a momentous um, political uh, accomplishment by uh, a Black woman who has an Indian mother. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what were your kids' first reactions? So they, uh, <laughs> it's really interesting. They're both teenagers. So, you know, teenager reactions are a little bit, uh, you know, reserved in some ways. And um, mostly my daughter, right? So I shared the news with my daughter and um, I told her about some of the reactions we were hearing from South Asians in particular. Um, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about her reactions in depth. Um, but her first thought was, you know, what's the big deal? (laughs) So I guess for the younger generation and for the teens, it's like they're, they, you know, to them, it's not as big of a deal because they see a lot of themselves everywhere, um, which is wonderful which is wonderful for them. Um, and so um, I, I have to give a few con- uh, pieces of context. I don't vote in the US. Uh, I am an immigrant here, but I do not have the right or the privilege to vote here. Um, and so in our family, we talk a lot about that, about that, you know, would these young people vote for her? And they said, yes, they would. What about your husband? How did he react? So. 
historically, his family, you know, like many African Americans in the South, in Atlanta, where we live, um, you know, affiliate with the Democratic Party, right? So they, you know, generally vote Democrat. And most family conversations with my in-laws are around, you know, the nuances of that and why that is and who the candidates are. So, you know, in many ways, I was really missing my mother-in-law because I would have really liked to talk to her before I talked to you um, because, you know, she is, she passed away recently and, you know, she'd be 88 years old and would have had some historic perspective around this. Um, and so I've really found myself asking my partner, Charles, you know, how does he think mom would have reacted to this? Uh, what do you think she would have said? And I think, I think she would have really been marveling at this, the way that she marveled during the Obama years. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm sorry that she passed away. That must have been really, really tough. Um, yeah, I mean, so one of the things that we talked about last time quite a lot was just like your journey to assimilation into the U.S. And I think it's interesting because a lot of Indians, as we spoke about, come to the States and for colonialist reasons, for just like the historic context of where they grew up, they really associate white people with power. And unfortunately, that is very much the case in the States. And so since a lot of immigrants are after a better life for themselves and for their children and orient themselves around that power dynamic, a lot of people who immigrate to the States from India therefore associate themselves with white people. Like that's kind of one of the gold standards. Yes. Um, your, your journey was really interesting and different because you said, especially growing up as an Af in Africa, in the Sub-Saharan Africa, in the continent, and just being who you are, uh, you oriented yourself totally differently. And you came into the black community, which was really accepting and really made you feel like you were here at home in the States. And I thought that was really powerful for me, for obvious reasons. My, my wife is an African immigrant as well. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's interesting to hear that because a lot of, I've gotten a lot of just kind of negative feedback and pushback on my relationship with my wife. And then I'm sure you got a lot of uh, negative feedback being with a black man. But now all of a sudden we have a lot of Indians who are realizing that the most powerful Indian woman in the country already is Kamala Harris, who is half black herself. Mm. And she is doing a very good job, I think, of presenting her background and her history and how she embraced her, her, you know, black identity by going to a historically black university, by being a part of a sorority there, um, by having very close friends and confidants with the Obama administration. So I think she, she's done a very good job of showing her balance of Indian and black identities. And that's, I think, disorienting for a lot of Indians, to be honest. So what were some of the reactions and dialogues you had in your household and just even in your own head of like, wow, kind of finally people understand my point that you can be black and proud, but also South Asian and proud. And those two things are not necessarily incompatible. Exactly. Those two things are not necessarily incompatible. So, you know, I've, I've heard a range of reactions from South Asians, Basies, as I refer to us, you know, diasporic folks. Um, one being really just referring to her simply as someone of Indian descent and erasing her blackness. I've heard a lot of that, a lot of claiming of her as an Indian person. And I've had to say, no, that's not quite accurate. <laughs> I've had a lot of, heard a lot of white reaction around erasing her South Asian-ness. I've heard a lot of black folks really embracing her as one of them in whatever the sort of 
encompassing definition of blackness is. And I think this is something we could talk about is that I don't think in the US in particular, we have a nuanced discourse around biracial identity, right? And I say this being the mother that they see South Asian descended mother of black children. And I have been very intentional in raising them in Atlanta where there is a very large African-American uh, community uh, where their uh, relatives are from, I made a lot of intentional decisions around raising my children so that they understand their own blackness and love themselves and their history and their heritage and their ancestry. Um, and, you know, some of those decisions involved uh, not um, teaching them any of the South Asian languages I speak. I speak multiple. And I did not teach those to my children, um, partly because it's complicated, right? So in America, even today, let alone in the 60s when Kamala Harris's family was raising her, um, how do you, how do you, convey a sense of uh, self to a person in a society that doesn't quite get it, right? Like there, there's really no easy way to be biracial even today. So I can only imagine what it was like growing up in the 60s and 70s. Um, so that has been part of our conversation in our family is, you know, I look to my daughter and I say, okay, so you have genetic commonality with Kamala Harris. How do you identify yourself? And my daughter will say she's black first and foremost, and that is how I've raised her. And by all research that I've done, including reading excerpts of her memoir, um, Kamala Harris says the same thing, that she is a black woman first and foremost. And I think really the South Asian folks will need to wrap our heads around that. I think we need to start there rather than claiming her as Indian, right? Or claiming, I've also heard a lot of discourse around demanding things of her to prove her Indianness. <laughs> have, you, have you read articles of critique of her and how she isn't claiming her Indianness enough? Yeah, but I think that's the case for almost anybody of any ethnic group. There's always a, a cohort of people who will say no matter how pervasive that identity is in America, that somehow America erased that and, and therefore that person is not of that identity. So growing up in the States, I see that pretty much all the time. Exactly. Uh, yeah, for, yeah, for me, that part is pretty common. But I think the more interesting thing is what you said for the biracial identity, because I think this is something that my wife is already grappling with for our future kids. It's like, yes. she's a very proud Nigerian person. I love that I'm of Indian origin. I love her country. I've been to Nigeria, spent a lot of time with her there. And yeah. so we're trying to think about like, okay, well, she's planning on carrying both of our kids, but I'm gonna, we're gonna use my eggs for at least one of our children. So that person would not have any genetic DNA, at least as far as the science tells us, that's directly um, related to Nigeria. Although I'm sure there is some, you know, transference of whoever, you know, carries the child. Um, but for the purposes of DNA, they won't have any Nigerian in them, but I, we still want our kids to have that Nigerian identity. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned or like what are some of the recommendations you would have for the Indian audience that is trying to grapple with this and talk about it for the first time? Because it, it could have been anybody. It could have been somebody who was half Indian and half Chinese. It could have been somebody who was half Indian and half white. It just so happens that it's somebody who's half Indian and half black. And I think that's already throwing a lot of people off. But even beyond that, we just don't, like you said, have very good language to describe people who are biracial. So what are some of the things that we should be thinking about or talking about? 
Well, I think we have to believe Kamala Harris and we have to believe her family. Um, and it, there's a very consistent messaging that they've had that, you know, that although her mom was Tamil and her grandparents are Tamil Brahmin, that she herself identifies as an unapologetically proud black woman. And she was raised that way by an Indian mother. So we really do need to, to hear her when she says that and to understand the context of that and the meaning of that. Her black father was from Jamaica, but she does not identify herself. She does not, her black identity is not through the lens of Caribbean-ness. Her black identity is through growing up in Oakland in a primarily black community, attending the black church with chosen family who were originally from Louisiana, from the South, and were there in Oakland raising her. Um, and so she was raised by chosen family who were black um, and black Christian and black Baptists. So every time we hear that in her memoir or in her self-presentation and why she chose to go to a historically black college and why her um, second mother, Mrs. Shelton's Bible was the Bible she used when she was sworn in for various um, you know, political roles, we need to really pay attention to that and what that means for her and her identity development. The identity polices, as you were saying earlier, is very common, right? Is, is the identity police out there are often going to, to create these random criteria for your identity. And even as a biracial person, especially as a biracial person maybe, it, we need to really pay attention to what that person says about themselves and how they self-identify and believe them, right? It's not up for debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, first and foremost, if somebody identifies themselves as some way, then you just go with that because that, that's who they are. Uh, um, and this is the conversation I've had with my daughter. Yeah. Who shares DNA, you know, in that way of having an African descended father and an Indian descended mother. And she's being raised in, in a way to be nuanced about her identity. And I asked her, I said, I said to her, I said, you know, when you grow up with your very Indian name and your very African middle name and your, your, your African American last name, and people try to tell you how to be Indian or why not to be Indian or how you're not Indian, you make sure that you are loud and proud about the fact that you are black. <laughs> that your Indian mother raised you to be proud of your blackness and to accept yourself first and foremost that way in a world uh, that does not respect that, right? So that is, that is one of those uh, subversive things because everything that I'm reading about Kamala Harris's mother also tells me that that was how she raised her daughters. She wanted them to be raised black and to be proud of that identity. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. was very intentional about it and made very intentional choices around that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, Kamala does do, I think, also a really good job of talking about her Indian heritage and a lot of the fond memories he ha she had. She used the word chitti in her speech for the acceptance yeah. in the Democratic Party. And I called my Tamilian grandmother right after that, and she was so emotional hearing that word in America. Yes. Uh, there's, there's a cathartic and a really powerful story yeah. for a lot of Indian immigrants who identify with her and are just very proud to have her there. And I do yeah. think that she does pay homage to that side and she's also very proud to be South Indian as well. So how do you recommend Indians who want to claim that or just show that they're very prideful of her 
talk about her life or who she is and what it means to them? You know, I think all of that is so true. It's so meaningful. It's so, so meaningful. And I, I completely understand the cathartic. I, I also received a lot of excite, excited uh, reactions around her use of the word to thee. And, um, you know, I think that we, we express excitement and enthusiasm without erasing the rest of her identity. Um, and I think that we're having a hard time. South Asian folks are having a hard time with that. We want her to be all one thing. And she's not. <laughs> so it's very risky. It's actually anti-Blackness in practice when we try to erase one part of her identity out in order to claim her as us, right? Um, and, and I think we need to be careful not to do that because I'm seeing us crossing that line in really disrespectful ways. So we want to be excited that she is proud of her Tamil grandparents and visits to India and that she understands that culture and that she represents something meaningful for us. But we also don't want to erase the part of her that, as we just got through saying, is unapologetically and very proudly Black. And yeah. it's difficult for us to figure that out, but we need to figure that out. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, whenever I talk about her, I do try to mention that blackness because especially, you know, being who I'm married to, it's very much a part of me now. Um, but I can, I can understand how a lot of Indians who kind of grew up in America, that's a very diverse country, but has been diverse and like racially, I'd say for maybe a couple generations. And it's not mainstreamed in our schooling. We don't have real dialogues in classes. I think a lot of universities are particularly ill-adapted at having these conversations because we have Mm -hmm. A lot of, you know, strong university institutions that have tenured professors, and I know you're a professor, so I'm sure you have a lot to say on this. And those tenured professors are setting curriculums for decades, you know, and if they don't have that language, then by proxy, a lot of their students will grow up not having that either. So I guess as a professor, when you're talking to your students, or if you, if you were to think about how you would put this in a curriculum, like, what are some of the pieces of language that we should be using? What are the constructs that we should be using? Like, I understand balancing the two sides and always giving, you know, the fact that she identifies first and foremost as a black woman, that prominence, but practically what are some statements that we could use or things that we could bring into our lexicon to kind of habitualize that? Um, and that's a, you know, th that's a longer question and I'm going to try to do justice to it by just answering it briefly. The first thing is that I think we're very excited by the idea that representation matters, right? So we, we hear a lot of conversation around representation matters was one of the hashtags that, that was used to describe excitement about what Kamala Harris's nomination um, means for South Asians. Um, and I think to the point of your question, that's not really adequate representation, you know, because Nikki Haley represents us too. So we really Probably. don't. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, so does Bobby Jindal. And so really. We well, I mean, it's an interesting question, though, because Nikki Haley, I'll have to push back a little bit on that, because I think Nikki Haley actively does not represent us. She bleached her skin. She converted to Christianity. She dropped her Indian surname. She very rarely mentions her Indian immigrant parents. She never talks about where her family got their money, which is through textiles, being Indian. So I think she actually doesn't represent us. And I think that's interesting. But somebody like Bobby Gentle, maybe somebody in between, but super conservative either way. So really hard to stomach. Right, right. And I threw those names out there just to give 
sort of a sense of we need to unsettle the idea that representation matters is where we need to be with this, right? Because representation is inadequate. It, it doesn't matter because what does that representation actually mean for us, right? Who does it benefit that she's been nominated? Who does it benefit to, you know, the South Asians do benefit from claiming her as someone who represents us, but at what cost? At, and who else is going to pay the price of her being claimed by us? Um, you know, we have to start asking all of these weird questions that make us uncomfortable because we don't have answers for these questions. And I think that's, rather than offering you lexicon for having these conversations, what I'm saying is, okay, so we're past the point of representation, we're past the point of diversity, we're past the point of any of those things really being adequate. Um, so if we do feel some type of way, mostly positive about her nomination, where can we take this in a way that moves us forward in building solidarity with black communities? Because we're also historically in a time where Black Lives Matter is something that has taken on even more poignant meaning. Um, and, and that we are in this mo moment where we have to advocate for justice for black folks, right? So we cannot have this conversation around being excited about her nomination in isolation from realizing that if we're going to do that, we also have some work to do to build solidarity with black communities. And, yeah, I, think, and I think that she's a bridge. I think that part yeah. of Mary, you know, I, I personally question her track record. She self-identifies as sort of a middle of the way Democrat who's very pragmatic. She likes to call herself pragmatic. Um, I think her parents were probably far more radical than she is. Um, and yet I'm really enthused about her nomination and the potential for what that means. What, where is she now a bridge for South Asians in particular to have work to do around unlearning our anti-blackness and starting to build meaningful solidarity with black folks? Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, and that's one of the interesting things about this representation, because I think like somebody like Nikki Haley or even Bobby Jindal, like they are representative in like the identity namesake for the fact that they are of Indian origin. But I think one, they don't represent the views of most Indians in America. I do think most Indians, especially those of us who were born here, do tend to lean left. Um, and I think that they went above and beyond anything in their immediate environment to conform to that white supremacist culture. I mean, even Bobby Jindal converted early on. I think he was in university and he spoke often about how converting to Christianity and dropping Hinduism as his religion was like this eye-opening thing that really liberated him. But then he used his power to turn around and cut arts programs and hurt people of color communities in such a disproportionate way. A lot of the so-called Christians that he said he felt solidarity with. So it became clear that his policies weren't Christian-based, they were white supremacy-based. So, and then Nikki Haley was exactly that. She went so far above and beyond to just drop her Indian identity and then became the governor of South Carolina. And I had friends living in South Carolina when she was governor, and a lot of them didn't even know she was of Indian origin. Exactly. So it was just this, like, really crappy representation. But then you get somebody like Kamala, who I think in her, maybe for political gain, but I don't even think that. I think just who she is. She had a background and just a life that really shows that she was able to embrace both sides of her identity. Maybe not equally. I agree that she puts the blackness part first and that's her choice, but she does show that she respects both sides immensely. And I think 
that part is really cathartic. And that's, that's one of the interesting ways that she could be a bridge. And I think it's also interesting because she does, you know, she's a woman of color in America and having grown up here and, you know, navigating the professional world, you can only go so far out of the norm before you're phased out, right? You don't get a lot of chances as being a brown woman in America or a black woman. So I'm really excited at the prospect of, you know, society fundamentally shifting because I think that means that she'll be able to shift with it and show people that she's capable of much more progressive policies. Yeah, and I absolutely feel like, you know, she represents a bridge, she represents an opening. There's so much poignant possibility in this moment. Um, and yet I also am very skeptical that electoral politics is really going to create the level of change that we really need. Um, and so I think there's a part of me that's cautious uh, around how much enthusiasm we have around her nomination, because as we head to November, I almost have a sense that we're, you know, watching a train headed towards, you know, uh, derailment, right? Like the, 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 the whole entire elect, electoral process. I live in Georgia, right? We, we know that our votes may or may not matter. <laughs> we know that the USPS, you know, may or may not be in existence. You know, we, there are just so many things looming ahead that make me very cautious about how much excitement I have about her nomination, meaning anything about our lives being different, especially the lives of black folks being any different than they are. Yeah, no, I, um, definitely, I definitely agree with that. I mean, mm-hmm. we're in an existential crisis and we knew that as soon as Trump got elected. We knew that before Trump got elected, but it, it was just constantly reinforced. And now by any index, like I'm, my background's in international development, but so by any index, by any quantitative measure, by any qualitative look, we're in massive trouble, you know, if somehow we don't have a landslide victory that the Electoral College can't possibly derail and Trump can't possibly claim that he won. Yeah, we're in a huge, in for a huge ride for the end of democracy in America, potentially. Um, So yeah, it could be completely irrelevant. But for those of us who are trying to stay optimistic, or even just thinking about what could happen, were that to be the case, I think, for one, Kamala's background as a a prosecutor as attorney general of California is incredibly valuable because she is probably one of our better legal minds in the country. Um, So that gives us some fail safe there, somebody in in the position of power being able to come directly and say this is incorrect or this is a misinterpretation or illegal, you know, and what you're doing and why. Um, Yeah, it's, 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 it's also really powerful that, you know, that person is a black woman and a South Asian woman. Exactly. And as you said, you can only imagine the hurdles that she had to overcome to be where she is today Um, and to still be as grounded and as committed to um, things as she is. And and there's really, you know, so much possibility there. And I want us to not expect more of her than she can deliver in a system that's broken. Yeah, I know. It's well said, I think. The yeah, system is so, so broken. Yeah, we can't put the onus of everything on her. You, you know, that her, and again, you know, she's not even candidate for president. So, you know, just, just, the, I feel like a lot of the enthusiasm by Democrats is so misdirected because it's taking away from the focus on those bigger level systemic changes that ought to be taking place. 
So I want us to be able to be uh, multi-functional uh, in our approach to this. And I'm finding that a lot of people are putting so much, so many unreasonable expectations on her nomination that that's what makes me really pause and be cautious. Yeah, yeah. I think the hope that I have on her is not that she's going to be a fundamental shift of the system, but more that the shift has already happened and she's a product of that. But what that means for the greater communities, I don't know, because you're right in that, I mean, income inequality is one thing in America. There's something called the Gini coefficient, which is a quantitative measure of income inequality across countries. Out of all the industrialized, like all of the high income nations in the world, we're by far and away the least equal. But that in income inequality then also translates to a power dynamic. And so we've got such a contrast of people in the lower socio, you know, the lower wealth quintile and the upper, the highest wealth quintile of what um, power means within communities. Like you've got Beyonce and Jay-Z and Kamala Harris and Barack Obama who are black. <laughs> and then you've got the majority of the black population in America who effectively have no collective wealth, which is just unbelievably sad. So where do we go from there and how do we correct all these things? I don't think she as a one person can do that, but I do think it's increasingly become sim becoming symbols of hope that America is capable of bridging these gaps. And yet I think that America, the way that white supremacy continues to operate is to give us these one token, one symbol, one exception, right? Yeah. Because, because that those exceptions are always the ones that are held up as proofs of the non-existence of white supremacy. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm constantly correcting people who say, well, see, America is America. I have hope in America again. And I'm like, but wait, <laughs> this is exactly how America continues to break our hearts. Yeah, but it goes beyond white supremacy. I mean, that's a huge part of it for sure. But, you know, that except exceptionalism story is something we see in the white community as well. It doesn't matter what your race is, you're categorically unlikely to move into a different wealth quintile in America, regardless of your race. Exactly. So how these interlocking systems are functioning, especially right now, mm -hmm. is really something to question. Yeah, it's true. Something to interrogate and something to say, okay, but our electoral process isn't going to address all those interlocking systems and how all of that is pressing up against us. Saki exists to end domestic and sexual violence against South Asian women. Although domestic violence has long been a silent subject in the community, two in five South Asian immigrant women in the U.S. are survivors. In its 30 years, Saki has united survivors, communities, and institutions to create powerful and sustainable change. Saki offers a range of services for the community. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741, and to learn more, visit their website at sakhi.org, or follow them on Twitter at sakhinyc. Another conversation that has come up in the South Asian community around Kamala Harris has been that of the caste of her Brahminess. Um, and a lot of the Dalit um, activists are really calling into question how Kamala Harris's Brahmin uh, roots are something that she hasn't quite addressed or grappled with or kind of been accountable for. Have you heard any of this commentary? Yeah, I have. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because I'm from the Vaisha cast and it's just, I don't know, I think 
some, I don't know how you feel because I know you grew up outside of India as well, but I feel sometimes that I'm wholly inadequately capable of talking about my caste with any real nuance. Like, I know that there are Brahmin people that my parents have associated with in the States as friends for a long time, and that would not necessarily happen in India, but I feel like a lot of the caste dialogues does get erased when you come here to the States because a lot of it then gets like translated into wealth. Like, is your family a Dalit but wealthy? Oh, what? all right, well then we'll still accept you into our community. Of course, depending on where you are and who exactly is your immediate Indian surroundings. But it is interesting because I don't know if it's, it's on her to say something or if it's on her to really talk about that if she feels like she's not able to. And I don't think it is on her at all. In fact, that's why I've been pausing a lot to really note this commentary. Um, you know, because again, at what point does caste, class, and race intersect for her in her identity, right? So we did start out this conversation talking about her, you know, biracial identity and how, you know, amazing she is about sort of ha owning both aspects of her heritage. Uh, while identifying as a black woman in America. And yet, you know, there is this other dimension which is relevant for South Asians in South Asia in particular, which is her caste uh, and the fact that her, her ancestry is Brahmin. Um, and it's something that is bubbling up, I think, in the South Asian dialogue about her. Um, and, and I don't know, as you were saying, to how to have a nuanced conversation around how caste, class, and race intersect, right? So, so going back also to your question around, you know, languaging and how would I talk to my students around it, this is another area that I would explore with my students is really how can we have conversations about identity that are nuanced and acknowledge this idea of intersectionality in a meaningful way. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know that we're able to have those conversations, but I think what deeply troubles me is that there is a lot of identity policing happening, right? And there is a lot of anti-blackness happening in conversations about her. Um, and I would rather we talk about her, you know, voting record, her policy making uh, approaches. I'd rather we talk about that more than talking about her identity. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, yeah, it, it does go both ways because for those of us, I'm, I'm really excited for Kamala for identity purposes, for sure. I agree with a lot of her policies. I think she's a super smart candidate. I love seeing her wipe the floor in the Senate with all these idiot guys, especially white men <laughs> who just don't know what they're talking about and are wholly inadequate when it comes to debating her. That just makes me happy on so many levels. Yes. Um, but, you know, part of it's it's true and I didn't really think about it until now is that if I'm going to embrace her for that identity piece then I also have to be able to have conversations about her identity like that's only fair exactly uh, we can't say oh you know we're going to claim her as Indian as many of our sort of older relatives are really super excited about this but without really understanding the context of what it means for her to have grown up in America mm -hmm. and the fact that her parents were divorced the fact that her mother has passed away and you know there are many like really intimate pieces of her identity that she's guarding and she doesn't owe us that she does not owe us any explanations about her identity and I wish that some people would understand that and be respectful around that yeah. Um, and I wish that we wouldn't just have conversations about her identity, but that we would we would have conversations about her policymaking and her politics. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's always a tough one too, especially being a minority in America, because when you try to embrace that part of your identity, then you get pushed back inevitably. Like somebody will disagree on the way that you present yourself just by the virtue of who you are. So it is really difficult to balance those conversations and just be who you are and do what you do. Yeah, and I don't think there is a balance, right? <laughs> like we could even try, but you know, we, yeah, I mean, it's a thing. It's complicated, it's nuanced, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable. Um, and this is where there is work for us to do is really to go past these conversations around identity and representation, but to go deeper and to say, okay, well then, you know, if we're this enthusiastic about her nomination, then maybe what we need to start doing is dismantling anti-blackness in our families, communities, and cultures so that we can be, you know, meaningful comrades with our black folks, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I want us to be having those conversations because to me, that's, that's where potential for change lies. Yeah, no, I think within the South Asian community, absolutely. Like you can't, you can't possibly be excited about Kamala Harris and then fail to acknowledge anti-blackness in your family or within yourself. That is completely incompatible, in my opinion. And I think just based on things I've read that part of her hesitation in having conversations about her mother and her mother's side of family, you know, part of, I think part of her being really guarded about that is potentially experiences that she's had that, you know, really don't lend themselves to having, you know, public discourse around. Mm -hmm. And I really want us to be respectful of that. I can only speak from my own personal experience that, you know, as much as I said in the first time you and I spoke that, you know, I was claimed by black folks. Black folks have this very embracing acceptance of a brown African girl who came to America. You know, my in-laws, have embraced me. Many of my friends who are now chosen family have embraced me in a way that black folks have historically done. And that's how Kamala Harris's mother was embraced by many black folks, her chosen family, her, her friendship networks from the University of California at Berkeley. And, you know, those are the people who had a hand in influencing and raising Kamala Harris. And those are people who later on were part of the Black Panther Party. You know, many of them were, you know, world-renowned sociologists and scholars of Black studies. Those are the people who had a hand in being friends to her mother and being extended family to her. And we need to really give a deep nod to that. Yeah, absolutely. And you even mentioned it in, your, in the last episode that we did that when you go out with your family, for instance, to a Hindu temple versus a, a black Christian church, you always feel a lot more welcome in that black Christian church than you do in the Hindu temple. And for sure, Kamala Harris in the 60s and 70s would have had similar, probably more dramatic experiences. She would have, we can only imagine, you know, I wanna be really respectful in not imputing experiences to her that she has, you know, not, um, explored, but I can only speak to my experiences raising my black children is that many of the Desi folks in our, uh, you know, friendship networks have been less than welcoming and less than tolerant and less than embracing of us. Um, and that is our reality. So if my children grow up and are hesitant to claim their Indianness, I know where it comes from. I know who the people were who actually showed up as chosen family. Um, to them and that we have to to be cognizant of that that until we dismantle anti-black attitudes in the Desi communities globally 
we're not going to have people like my children be proudly claiming their Indianness. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. We, we have work to do is what I'm saying is that, yeah. you know, we just have a lot more work to do before we can be at the point of fully embracing and fully realizing what it means for biracially black children who have daisy parents to be part of us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Guy3, for coming back on the show. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Remember, the U.S. presidential election is on November 3rd, and many states have early and mail-in voting. If you are eligible, go vote. Together, we can ensure sanity and decency prevail. This episode of Desi Women Diaspora was written, produced, and recorded by Mala Kumar, with editing by Kiran Kumar. Our music was written and recorded by Joseph McDade. Find him on Patreon at patreon.com slash josephmcdade. Thank you as well to our interview guest, Gayatri Sethi. For those of you who would like to get updates on Gayatri's upcoming book, follow her on Instagram at DesiBookAuntie. That's D-E-S-I-B-O-O-K-A-U-N-T-Y. Finally, to all eligible voters in the United States, make your voice heard and vote on or before November 3rd.